Welcome to the Awesomers.com podcast. If you love to learn, and if you're motivated to expand your mind, and heck, if you desire to break through those traditional paradigms and find your own version of success, you are in the right place. Awesomers around the world are on a journey to improve their lives and the lives of those around them. We believe in paying it forward, and we fundamentally try to live up to the great Zig Ziglar quote, where he said, you can have everything in your life you want if you help enough other people get what they want. It doesn't matter where you came from, it only matters where you're going. My name is Steve Simonson, and I hope you will join me on this awesomer journey. If you're launching a new product manufactured in China, you will need professional, high-resolution, Amazon-ready photographs. Because Simo Global has a team of professionals in China, you will oftentimes receive your listings photographs before your product even leaves the country. This streamlined process will save you the time, money, and energy needed to concentrate on marketing and other creative content strategies before your item is in stock and ready for sale. Visit simoglobal.com to learn more, because a picture should be worth 1,000 keywords. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. You're listening to episode number 59 of the Awesomers.com podcast. And all you have to do is go to Awesomers.com slash 59 to find any of the show notes and details and even a transcript of this particular episode. Now, today I'm joined by Steve Hoffman, also known to insiders as Captain Hoff. And he is a serial entrepreneur, angel investor, and partner at Founders.vc. Uh, which he's also a limited partner in August Capital and an author of the book Make Elephants Fly. Uh, Hoffman is also the captain and CEO of Founderspace, which is one of the world's leading incubators and accelerators with over 50 partners in 22 different countries. Now, he's always been innovating in his life. Captain Hoff has tried more professions than cats have lives, including serial entrepreneur, venture capitalist, angel investor, studio head, computer engineer, filmmaker, Hollywood TV exec, published author, coder, game designer, animator, and voice actor. That's a lot of stuff to do. While in Hollywood, Hoffman worked as a TV development executive at Fry's Entertainment, known for producing over 100 TV shows, which was acquired later by MGM. He went on to pioneer interactive television with his venture-funded startup, Spider Dance, which produced interactive TV shows with NBC, MTV, Turner, Warner Brothers, History Channel, Game Show Network, and many more. In Silicon Valley, Hoffman founded two more venture-backed startups in the areas of games and entertainment and worked as mobile studio head for Infospace with such hit games as Tetris, Wheel of Fortune, Tomb Raider, Thief, Hitman, Skee-Ball, and X-Files. Hoffman went on to launch Founderspace with the mission to educate and accelerate entrepreneurs. And Founderspace has become one of the world's top startup accelerators. Hoffman has trained hundreds of startup founders and corporate executives, executives in the art of innovation and routinely works with the world's largest global corporations and venture funds to talk more about innovation and doing something special and different. I know that I will learn lots from Steve today and I hope that you do too. Hello, Awesomers. It's me, Steve Simonson. I'm back again with another episode of the Awesomers.com podcast. And today, my special guest is Stephen Huffman. How are you, Stephen? Hi, Steve. Great to be here. It's certainly a pleasure. And with a name like that, I know you're going to be an awesomer guest. That's for sure. I feel awesome. (laughs) Good. That's how we like it. Uh, So I've already read in a bio and and a little bit about uh, your history and yourself to the, uh, the folks listening at home. But maybe in your own words, you could tell us kind of what you do day to day that takes up your time. 
day to day. So what I like about my job is that almost every day is different. So today I'm talking to you. Yep. This morning, I had a group from Korea come to Founderspace, and we educated them all about Silicon Valley, about raising capital, getting their companies going. Yesterday, I was working with Germans. So it was a bunch of German entrepreneurs who are here, as well as German business owners who have like medium-sized businesses, and they were really interested in how to innovate and how to bring innovation into their companies. And, you know, they're German, so they're very process-driven. Um, we're Californian out here, and we're much more free and easygoing and play it by ear. So it was a, a very uh, interesting dynamic and discussion we had. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, it reminds me of a time where I'm kind of more West Coast, easygoing guy, and uh, I was having a meeting with some, some guys in Atlanta, but there was a German manufacturing company. And, uh, you know, the meeting gets started at 9 um, you know, around about nine and, uh, you know, quarter past, I'm like, you know, I'm going to run to the restroom real quick. And the, the guy who's in charge, is kind of like, uh, no, we have bathroom break at 11 a.m. You yeah. know, it's like, I have, I have to schedule my bathroom breaks. In the middle. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, uh, this is awesome. So anyway, I, I understand they're very precise and, uh, sometimes the West coast were more easy going. So it's a good, but it was good. Go. I gave them an injection of West coast thinking. I love it. That's good. Uh, well, well done there. So uh, we're going to talk more about founder space and kind of your history in Silicon Valley and, and all those exciting things. But we're going to first, I like to get kind of to the root of the story, the origin stories, I like to call it. Uh, and we're going to do that right after this break. Hey, Amazon Marketplace professionals, congratulations on your success to date. Your creativity, strategic vision, problem solving and discipline have allowed you to build your own e-commerce business. Wouldn't it be great if you had more time to focus on the things that truly drive the sales and growth of your company? Instead of getting lost in a dozen different services and countless spreadsheets, what if there was one system that connected to your Amazon account and automatically gave you the information that you needed to make great decisions and really impact your business? Parsimony ERP can do that. Parsimony is the business operating system for your marketplace business. With Parsimony, you get true double entry bookkeeping, easy financial statements, full customer service tools, and I item by item profitability, along with project and task management, and more features are being added all the time. Learn more at parsimony.com. That's parsimony, P-A-R-S-I-M-O-N-Y.com. Parsimony.com. We've got that. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. Hey, how about that? Through the magic of editing, we're back already. And uh, Stephen Hoffman, uh, my guest today here on Awesomers.com. Uh, Stephen, I'd like to get to that, that root of the origin story, and that's where you're born. So maybe you could uh, do a big reveal. Where did you come from? I was born in Boston, Massachusetts. Oh, yeah, so my dad was a professor. I was born there. At one year old, um, we took, he took a sabbatical, and we went off to Italy, where he worked on developing nuclear fusion, something which still isn't commercially viable, but he was working on it when I was a child, when I was one year old. And I spent a year growing up in Italy, and then we came back to Boston and moved all around, wound up in California. Wow. I would not have thought of Italy as the place for fusion research, I have to say. Uh, if you told me like fusion cu cuisine or something like that, <laughs> I could get on board. But yeah, that's a very interesting. You know, they had for the Europe, for all of Europe, uh, they had their central research for all the European scientists in Rome. So I love it. Well, I guess if you're going to be on a sabbatical, that's a nice place to go. So, so it sounds like your, your father was kind of in that university and research space. Uh, how about your mom? What was she doing around that time? My mom is an artist. 
so she was painting and doing sculptures and you know for her going to Italy was an amazing experience with you know the whole art history and everything else and she would have shows in Italy and made all these friends so yeah she had a fantastic time. Boy I tell you that's one of my favorite things about Rome uh, religious or not religious doesn't matter any religion doesn't matter just go to the Vatican City go check oh, yeah. out all of the galleries and the Sistine Chapel and there, there are museums. Even the map room there is blowing me away. I, it's just a place I love. You can't so, turn around without bumping into art. Yeah, well, I mean, and they're like ex historic relics, right? Every yeah, single one's like, oh, that's two thousand years old. That's really amazing. Yeah. So, uh, how about any siblings? Oh, I have a brother that came. Uh, you know, he was two and a half years uh, my junior, oh. so he came after the Italy trip. That was I all see for that. me. And how about, uh, uh, did he have any uh, entrepreneurial tendencies? Absolutely not. Interesting. We couldn't be more different. So I sort of had a blend of my father and mother. Uh, you know, the science side uh, from my father, kind of the art uh, creative side from my mother, which has sort of guided me through my life. My brother, he craves stability. So while I always want to uh, do something new, try something new, destabilize my life in various ways, one of them being an entrepreneur. He's always trying to fortify his life and keep it planned and keep it predictable. So he works in, guess where he works? He works in a bank. Oh, my, <laughs> How much more predictable I, can you get than working in a bank? And dang he's it. a programmer in a bank. So oh, how much more predictable can you get than a programmer in a bank? <laughs> Gosh, I was going to lean into accounting or something like that, but that is pretty stable. Now, yeah. interesting because that, that stable piece and your kind of uh, maverick piece, uh, yeah. it, it kind of coalesces around the idea of an incubator, which we're going to talk about in a little bit later. But, you know, that's the, the, part of the point of an incubator is to have that innovation, have that exciting space and energy but to add some stability to it, right? A little bit of a, a foundation. Would you agree with that premise? I agree. You yeah. can't truly be creative unless you have the unexpected. If it's yeah. all expected, if it can all be planned, then somebody else is doing it already. <laughs> so you need this injection of energy and ideas and new things so that you suddenly, you know, your brain clicks and you see a path forward that other people haven't already taken. I love it. Now, uh, after your uh, experience growing up, did you attend university? I did. Uh, I was a good student. So <laughs> I, went, I went to electrical computer engineering. Okay. I wanted to be an artist, honestly. I was like, I was gonna be a painter or sculptor or architect or do something, right? Or make movies. I was really passionate about movies and games. I wanted to do something on the creative side, but my father, you know, being this engineer, I'm being very practical, said, son, computers are going to change the world. Just study computers. <laughs> and I, I said, oh, I guess so. Maybe I can make games with computers. So I went off, did electrical computer engineering. As soon as I graduated from undergraduate, I had all these job offers and I said, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do this. I, I did it for four years. I, I want to do what I want to do now. And then I went off to film school. So I went to USC film school, studied uh, movie making. What, that was you know, my artistic passion. And then I went on to work in Hollywood. And then after Hollywood, I went on to make games. So I combined all these different things, my engineering background, my cinematic background, uh, design, designing, designed many, many dozens of different games. 
uh, worked for a Sega kind of uh, in their heyday and uh, had my own game companies and just kept going. I love it. Uh, for the millennials out there listening, uh, you can uh, look on Wikipedia for what Sega is. <laughs> <Almost>. <laughs> they know Sonic the Hedgehog. I Certainly. Think yeah, That's yeah I loved uh, the old Sega and... Uh, you know, that's, yeah, it was, it was a, yeah, the Sega Genesis, I mean, that was like the leading console of its time, honestly. Yeah, for you and I, it, yeah, it, yeah. it had it passed up Nintendo at that point. Yeah, that yeah, answer. that's... So they uh, were on top of the world, but you're, ne you're never on top of the world for long. No, no, that's a very important lesson for everybody at home, right? You know, whoever's king of the hill at that moment, whether it's Atari or Nintendo or Sega or whoever, there's somebody else coming, somebody else is There's somebody else coming. Yeah, so uh, that's fascinating stuff. Now... You know, from uh, your university experience, it sounds like you enjoyed that. What was your first proper job? You mentioned Hollywood in there. What was your proper, proper, job? proper job? You don't yeah. consider working in Hollywood a proper job? I was It could be, <laughs> but what, what kind of a description was it? I mean, were you a, a gaffer well, or a director or what were you? Well, I started off uh, as a script reader, which uh -huh. isn't a great job. They just give you a stack of scripts and uh, they pay you almost nothing. <laughs> and you have to write up your opinions, whether they're good or thumbs up or th you get to be Siskel and Ebert, except the quality is pretty low on most of the scripts. So you, uh. I did that for a few months, but then I got promoted. So I, got, uh, I worked my way up and in a very short time, I became a TV development executive. And I guess you could say that was my first proper job. And I was working, you know, getting material, uh, packaging it up. We, we, I was in Freeze Entertainment, a big, it got bought by MGM, but it's, it was a big uh, television production company that made TV movies and sitcoms and feature films and all these things. And my job was to uh, manage, I ended up managing a team of readers and then interfacing between the agents, the producers, the, our, 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 you know, the uh, CEO of the company to get projects off the ground. Amazing, yeah, that's quite a uh, quite a run from uh, doing book reports on. Uh, I know on I stuff know. written by probably most of them were the wait staff at the time, right? Until you get a script done, you're probably waiting tables. You have uh, to because yeah. you can't live off of it. Yeah, that's amazing. So, uh, so that's fascinating to to have that kind of uh, fast action. So, and uh, from that point, kind of that first proper job to to today, was there any defining moment that stands out in your mind that you care to share? So many. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so many well, you know, I made the pivot. So I knew computer games were getting more and more popular. I wanted to actually make my own movies, but in Hollywood, it's really hard. I mean, you get, I mean, you, it, you have to have all the right connections. And even in my position, you know, I was more at an executive level. So just uh, managing the process. I wasn't actually making the movies. And then one of the producers at our company, his cousin was the founder of Sega. And the founder of Sega is an American uh, who founded it after World War II. It was called Service Games, Sega. So he introduced me to his cousin. I said, you know, in addition to making movies, I've always had this passion for games because as a child, I made, I made over 50 movies, uh, you know, Super 8 films when I was a kid. And then I made over, uh, you know, 100 different games, mostly wow. board games. And so I went to him and I said, I have all these ideas to design games. I want to leave Hollywood because I'm not actually being creative enough. And I want to go to Tokyo. And he said, come on, we want to hire somebody from Hollywood. So he set me up, flew me to Tokyo. 
I ended up uh, working in game design at their headquarters, which was amazing. We were working on you know all these amazing at the time arcade games like Virtual Racing and Virtual Fighter. I don't know if you remember those. Oh, of course, I'm sure I put many a quarter or a dollar or whatever it was at the time into those. Awesome, yeah. you're my type of guy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I did that. And then after that, I, I decided I should just make games for myself. Why am I making games for this big company? I should just do it. So I moved back to Silicon Valley, San Francisco, uh, set up my own games company called Lava Mine, and we just started making games. So I, you know, off our own money, you know, just bootstrapped it like all good startups do. I love and it. Our first game was called Gazillionaire. Uh -huh. <laughs> and it was all about how to make a gazillion dollars. It was it was actually about how to be an entrepreneur. So you are a space trader in outer space. You're running your own business. You have your weird alien employees and they go on strike and you have to buy low, sell high. It was, it was really fun. We got the game published. Uh, we just, I coded it myself. Wow. I knew how to code. Uh, my wife did all the, the artwork for it. <laughs> she, you know, it was the two of us basically and a couple contractors. We put it out there as shareware. Uh, okay. People were downloading it, and you know, Lord Geck was our first buyer. He wrote us a check. Wow! <laughs> so Lord Geck was, and he came to our house to buy the game because the internet was so primitive in those days. He came there and handed us the money, uh, I, which was awesome. And then it got picked up by a large publisher at the time, which was called Spectrum Holobyte Microprose. Hmm. So Microprose, you know, did the did uh, Civilization games, and they had merged with Spectrum Holobyte, which did the Star Trek and all these other games. And they uh, published our game. It went out everywhere. We, wow. we went out all into every store. We did licensing deals all over the world. Our company was doing incredibly well. We made two more games. So we made a trilogy of these business simulation games, uh -huh. Capitalism and Profitania. And then after that, the internet was just like exploding, you know, things were happening. We're like, we got to get on this internet bandwagon, you know, we can't just do these computer games, we got to get on the internet. So uh, I teamed up with my old film school partner, and she was in New York uh, working uh, as the creative director uh, for this company called RGA. It's a very well-known uh, interactive and commercial company uh, that's done many, many famous things. And her company, RGA, that she was working for, she spearheaded the project that they did for Microsoft. And it was their Microsoft's first uh, massively multiplayer online game show. And it, was, and, and it was called NetWits. It was amazing. It was like truly amazing. So uh, the engineer who coded that with her, uh, he was a contractor and he owned the code for how to do these massively multiplayer online games. Wow. We're like, we should do this together. <laughs> I'm making games. You're making games. So she left her company. I, uh, my wife and I stopped a Lava Mine, and we formed a new company called Spider Dance. And that was our first venture-funded company. That was when oh. we kind of got into the whole internet space, venture capital. It was an amazing ride. We ended up doing interactive TV game shows uh, for all the major networks. Not all, but on most of the major networks. We worked with Viacom, MTV, uh, Turner Broadcasting, Warner Brothers, NBC, all these things. And we tied them to TV shows like The Weakest Link and uh, this uh, game called History IQ and another game called Inquisition, even James Bond movies. And I just got on the thing. I did uh, two more startups, venture-funded startups after that. And then uh, I was taking a break. And... 
all my friends were coming to me, Steve, how do you raise money? How do you do this? What, what does it take to do a startup? And I said, let's go out to coffee. So we go out to coffee and I explain everything to them. They got all excited. I was excited. And then they kept asking me questions. So I started to post the answer on my blog and I called my blog Founder Space. I love it. Yeah. And uh, then all these people I didn't know started to come to me because of the Founder Space. And we started to set up what we call Founder Space Roundtables here in Silicon Valley, where people would come in and I'd connect them with investors and lawyers and give them advice and kind of give them you know, enthusiasm and everything else. And it kept growing. It spread all around the world, these roundtables. And then we launched our incubator accelerator. And before I knew it, I was working again. It was actually a business. And now we're, you know, we're in over 22 countries around the world. We have partners, you know, in China, all across Europe, you know, Malaysia, Singapore, Japan. So I spend over half my time traveling, which I love. And working with startups, which I love, so I feel a really, really fortunate in life that I can uh, have a fun life. And yeah, that is really fun, actually. And boy, there's so much in there. You know, talking about the idea of first of all starting this this just concept of somebody asks you for help, and you're like, yeah, yeah, let's go out for coffee. And then, right, more and more it happens, and you're like, hey, here's a FAQ document or whatever, right? Because you're like, yeah. I don't want to answer the same question a <laughs> exactly. thousand times. And, and pretty soon, you know, the, the, the other pieces, right? It's like, okay, we got the FAQ, but who, who's the lawyer you talking about? And who's the right finance guy or who's the CPA? And all of it is, is second nature to you. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And before yeah. I knew it, we were running an accelerator without having a space. So we were like, and we're called founder space. Yeah, that Darn, is funny. You better get a space. How <laughs> ironic. So where our space is. Tell me about your first, the, the first space that you uh, opened up in Silicon Valley, presumably. So we're still there. Oh, so okay. It's, it's on Townsend Street. Okay. 450 Townsend Street, if anybody wants to drop by. So forfeit, right near uh, TechCrunch and Zynga and Adobe, you know, that same area, right near the train station. Great. It's the heart of Silicon Valley. Um, not yeah. the heart of, heart of Soma. Uh, south of Market, San Francisco, where all the startups are. We have the space. My car partner is Ken Thom. Uh, he runs the co-working part of what we do. And we just landed there, uh, set up our space, and have kept expanding. So now we have uh, uh, we just signed a deal to open a space in Singapore. We have a lot of spaces in China. So we have them in like cities like Beijing, Shanghai, Wuhan, Chengdu, Xi'an. And we're opening up more. And uh, more importantly, I think, is not running the space. Because even though it's in my name, <laughs> space doesn't matter. What matters is the time you put into training and coaching and mentoring the startups. That's what matters. You can have the fanciest space in the world, and it won't make any difference to the startups if you don't uh, really understand their business and can really guide them uh, along the right path. And that's where we put most of our energy, to be honest. Yeah, well, and that's where it's uh, probably most uh, beneficial to them, especially long-term, right? Learning from your experience, learning from all the, the lessons. Maybe you learned the hard way. Oh, yes. I learned the hard way. Yeah. So some of my startups were very successful. Some were just agonizing. <laughs> so I've been in the trenches in the worst battles and uh, suffered uh, defeats and, and had victories. But with, without the really tough moments, the really hard times, I honestly couldn't be as empathetic 
uh, to startup founders. And I wouldn't really know what it's like to be in their shoes. So like I got crushed at times. I mean, totally ground up and crushed. And, you know, my idea, my dream just broke. Yeah. And when that happens, you, I mean, you don't know what it feels like until you feel it, right? Until you feel like, wow, I put everything I have into this. I believed in it so much. I got all my friends involved. I took in money and it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> now yeah. we have to feel it. <laughs> it is, it is, uh, it can be crushing, but I mean, the, the reality is we, we persevere, right? You know, we you, do, we you, do. Take yeah. the, the hit, you move on. Uh, so listen, uh, I, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to dive into the general concept of what an incubator is, especially for the listeners who aren't familiar, sure. uh, and also pivot into you know kind of how people raise money today, what, what are best practices today, and whether or not that's changed uh, over the, the recent years. So we're going to do that right after this break. Empowering. The name says it all. Connecting e-commerce entrepreneurs with great people, ideas, systems, and the services needed to stay business dynamic and to grow. Empowery is a network, a cooperative venture of tools and resources to make you better at what you do. Because we love what you do. We are you. Visit Empowery.com to learn more. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. Okay, here we are back again, everybody. Steve Simonson, joined by Stephen Hoffman. Now, do you go by Steve or Stephen mostly? I go by Captain Hoff. We'll go, I'm here with That's Captain Hoff. <laughs> yeah, Captain Hoff on board. Uh, and we're flying uh, with Founder Space today. And one of the things I talked about, teased before the break, is this idea of what exactly is an incubator? There's a lot of people who have heard the term, but I'm not sure they've ever actually set foot in one or really understand the practical application. So can you enlighten us? Yeah, I don't even know what one is. Well, there you go. People come to me from all over the world and like, what is an incubator? They always ask me that question. And I'm like, well, there's the technical definition and then there's what reality. So most people don't even understand the difference, even if they're in tech, like totally immersed, between an incubator and an accelerator. Like what's the difference between the two? And honestly, people use them interchangeably. So, yeah. uh, but technically an incubator is where you bring in startups that just have an idea and you fund them from the get-go. And an accelerator means you get them going faster. It's a startup that's already going, they already have a team, they may have funding, they already have a product in development or already launched, and you're helping them go faster. In, in reality, we're an accelerator. That's what we do. Uh, but most people use the terms interchangeably. So at Founderspace, we call ourselves an incubator accelerator because we have people coming from all over the world and they don't know the difference. Yeah, I have to admit, I wouldn't have been able to make that delineation, but I think it's well said. And obviously, you know, everybody kind of picks their their part of a company stage that they're most interested in, you know, where they perhaps can add the most value. Some people are all about, you know, finding that inventor who just has the harebrained scheme and maybe a, a patent underway, but nothing else and doesn't know how to bring it to market. There's people who specialize in bringing that, uh, that vision forward. And then there's other folks, it sounds like you guys take it where there's already some uh, foundation laid and then you figure out how to make that thing, you know, shoot off into the space. Is that Absolutely. about right? So we are in the middle. We're in the middle. We're not at the very, very beginning, although a lot of startups come to us at that point and we can give them advice. But really what we do best is when they already have figured something out and they need to get to the next level, they need to raise capital, they need to uh, expand their business. And that's where founder space steps in. I got you. So let's talk about that capital raise process. So a lot of the listeners here, um, you know, they they have bootstrapped their way to wherever they are. Uh, they, you know, of course, listeners are going to range from all sizes. But I know firsthand many listeners who 
are in that, you know, maybe I, they got from the one to 5 million range and, and they're struggling to figure out, you know, how to, to get past that 5 million range. Uh, or per, maybe they've gotten to that 20 million range and now they're hitting their head on, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm constantly under stress. I don't have enough capital. You know, they're just stuck. So can you talk about a couple of those scenarios and how people go about raising outside capital and, and when it's a good idea, maybe when it's not? The, the hardest capital to raise is your first capital. You know, it's at the beginning. It's really, really hard. A, a lot of startup founders, I tell them, you know, don't borrow money from your friends and family if you can. Save up your own money because 90% of startups fail. And you want to take somebody's money when you have a 90 plus chance of not succeeding? I know it seems great now, but you, you know, and you only read about the success stories when you, when you read the blogs and everything like that. They don't write about all the people who, who failed, um, but you need to be realistic about it. And uh, the best way is from professional investors, angel investors are your best, because first of all, they, they should be rich. If they're accredited angel investors, they should have the disposable money to, and they should be somewhat aware of the risk they're taking. You know, if you go to your friends, they're just giving you the money because they're your friend. Your family's just giving you the money because your family, they don't really understand. They may think they're going to invest in the next Facebook, but they don't understand your business. And, and if you lose their money, you run the risk of losing their, your friend and or having a bad relationship with family members. And that's just not worth it in life. So I'm like, go to real investors. If a real investor who really understands uh, the market isn't willing to invest, that should be telling you something. And even going to them and pitching them and getting their feedback, you can learn a tremendous amount because most angel investors are experienced business people. They've learned a lot. They might not always be right, but getting different perspectives and assimilating all these different ideas will only make you stronger. So I say, come up with your idea, pick an idea. If it's your first startup, if you're not Elon Musk and you don't have millions or Zuckerberg and you don't have millions and can just launch something, then pick an idea that you can do on your budget. And the beauty of today with the cloud, Amazon, all that, you can do startups for no money, for virtually just your time. So if you've saved up enough money and time, and then what comes into play is your ability to recruit other people. Get great people. If you're not an engineer, you need to get a great engineer on your team. If you're not a great designer, you need to get a great designer. And I will tell you, my litmus test for startups that I want to invest in are, did they do that? Did they pull in, uh, were they on no money, on no money, able to convince other people to join them? Because if they can do that, they are a great leader and they have the potential to become a, a real startup, a startup that works. It's sort of, and if they can't do that, if they're just counting on money to solve all their problems, it never does. It never does. Trust me, you raise a lot of money. <laughs> it accounts for nothing in the end if you haven't figured out your business and if you don't have the right team on board. Well, I think that is such a really good uh, piece of, uh, you know, kind of information there. For the Osmers at home, you know, Steve was basically, or actually Captain Huff, right? Yes. Captain Huff was able to just lay some wisdom on you. And I don't want you to miss it. This idea that one of the, the telling factors as he's evaluating a company or investment is whether or not without capital, you're able to get and recruit a team, right? That shows leadership. It shows passion. It shows kind of that, that core inner drive that every in, investor wants to see. If they don't see kind of the inner drive, uh, and uh, I'm not speaking for Captain Huff in this case, but uh, myself, if investors in general, if they don't see you willing to risk time and energy and reputation, 
then why would they put their money in, right? Because you're just like, hey, this is a really great idea, but I just need your money to make it go. That's just not a great uh, likelihood of raising money. And it's already hard to raise money. Is that fair to say? Or what do you think? It's really hard to raise money. Yeah. And we usually bet on the people because uh, most of the time, the first idea you try doesn't work. And so if you're the type of person who can bounce back from an idea, who surrounds himself with really smart, capable people, eventually you will figure it out. If you aren't that type of person, you could be handed the best idea in the world and you'll probably fail to execute because building a company, you never build a billion dollar company by yourself. And that, and, and so I look more for the leadership, the, the, the dynamics, the team dynamics to be there more than anything else when I do my early stage investments. And I wanted to share something. I don't know if you know this, but uh, I just wrote this book, Make Elephants Fly. I love so it. This, Tell us more. Oh, okay. So it's published all around the world. Hachette is the publisher. It's like uh, won a bunch of awards, won the, like the Axiom Award. It's a bestseller, even in China and other many other countries. And what it does, it goes through a lot of what we're talking about. So it really goes through how do you come up with that big idea? And that idea, big idea is your elephant. You know, how do you come up with an elephant and how do you make do the impossible, which is, you know, make it fly, right? We all want our big ideas to fly, but at a certain time, I will tell you, every startup founder doubts. <laughs> like, oh, is this possible? Can it work? Um, so that's what the book is about. It's sort of about my experience over the past, you know, 20 years working in depth with startup founders and kind of going through the process with them uh, over and over in many different sectors, you know, everything from you know, software to hardware to traditional businesses, all these different businesses and accumulating the mistakes they made and what they did wrong, trying to show those case studies. And then the startup founders who actually overcame the obstacles and did it right and, and what path they took. I love it. Well, first of all, we'll make sure we get the uh, in the show notes, all the links to uh, not just founder space, but the book itself. Uh, I love that title, Make Elephants Fly, because you know, everybody wants the big idea, but really that idea has got to fly and it is uh, heavy and bloated and often not aerodynamic. <laughs> so yes, and the idea, uh, the idea, it, you want a big idea, right? You want to do something great, but the idea, uh, getting it off the ground is the hard part. Execution is the hard part. A lot of people have great ideas. Very few people are really incredible at executing. It, it That really is a differentiator. And, you know, in my experience, I used to, um, entrepreneurs would come to, you know, some business we've had that have uh, moderate or reasonable success. And they'd say, Hey, what's your secret? You know, they always want the silver bullet. And we would just say, well, here's exactly what we're doing. A, B, C, D, E. And of course there's subsets of all of those. And, and they're like, well, that just seems like, you know, regular business stuff. You're, you're marketing well, and you're hiring and you're exit, you know, you're, you're shipping stuff. And it's like the boring stuff. And yeah. it's like, yeah, yeah, we, we, we have a funnel that brings in customers. We deliver the stuff on time and they seem to be happy in the end, right? And, and they want the magic bullet, but it's like execution is what matters. And of all the people we told that story to, dozens and dozens, zero of them went out and executed on their own, right? They're like, no, no, I need to find the silver bullet. So yeah, everybody wants the quick, fi quick fix. You know, when people come to Silicon Valley here, the biggest mistake they make is they all come just wanting to get funded. And they believe in their mind that if I get the money, it's validation I've succeeded. I will tell you, if you get the money, you have just begun the hard part. Oh. <laughs> it gets a lot harder after you raise the money than you thought even before. You, you know, I was there. Like I thought, oh, if they just give me the money, everything's done. I can just cruise. We've already made it. We have VCs backing us. I don't have to worry. No, no. 
Yeah, haven't you seen my hockey stick chart? It's right yeah. there on paper. Uh, yeah. Uh, so you know, I, I do find that uh, very interesting that everybody, we we all have this vision. This is not unique to one person or another. That you know, our idea is great and it's the best. And if we just put some money in it, uh, it's all great. But you know, as hard as it is to get funded, may, may, you know, whether that's a ten thousand to one shot or a thousand one shot, I don't know. But once you get funded, what do you, what's the success ratio of those funded companies? It's not that great. So AngelList, which is a big funding site out there, uh, they did a study and they found that 70% of the startups that get angel funding fail to get the next round. Yeah. So they never get their Series A, the big money. That's so, uh, whew, scary. That's pretty high, right? Yeah. That's pretty high. It's not the 90% at the beginning, but it's still darn high. So until you get that first serious round of venture capital, that's when the risk really starts to drop. But it doesn't go away. I mean, even from a series A to series B, there's a huge drop off of startups. And by the time you get to your series C and series D, then you're usually pretty much going. That's the point. Because all of it comes down to whether there's a product market fit. That means, is there? have you figured out something that customers just have to have, right? That they love that they are going to you know, bang down doors to get to your product over other people. If you have figured that out, you will succeed. I mean, you will succeed in the end. But figuring that out, if that it happens from the beginning idea all the way through to like series B, it usually takes that long. And in that point, that's when most of the startups uh, fail to figure that out. And the reason it's so hard is because if it was easy, we would all be Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> or we'd all be Bill Gates. I mean, if it was easy, everybody would have a unicorn, but it's not that easy. That's quite right. And so I think the angels list data is instructive. Uh, my own uh, recollection is, you know, even from the folks who get from angel to that series A, like the series A breakage is still, you know, VCs are largely like, um, you know, we hope we can do really well with this fund, but probably nine out of 10 are going to go away, you know, or, or they'll exit at some, um, neutral multiple, right? They, they don't actually that make money. Right. Yeah, that so, is their business model. Yeah. So they're that, you know, each time that smaller group still has less and less chance of, you know, kind of hitting it big. And I, I think that people often forget that money is not the solution. It's just, you know, part of the recipe for uh, getting if the, you the have idea. a good startup. If you have a good business model that you figured out that's unique, that's different than other people, that's either significantly better or it's pioneering a new market that people haven't already, isn't already overcrowded. If you have that, uh, that is the core to breaking through. But money cannot give you that. You need to fit, that requires you to figure it out. It's like solving a puzzle. And the puzzle is constantly changing because uh, markets are changing, companies are evolving, new products are always being launched, old products are dying off, old markets are shrinking. And it's only good for a specific point in time. So you have to have it just the right time, just the right idea, and just the right team to execute. And then money makes all the difference, right? It can propel you forward. But if you don't have the first three things, you can pump as much money as you, you want into the startup, and it will go nowhere. And yeah. I will tell you, there are so many companies in Silicon Valley that looked great on the surface, and then they just implode. I mean... Do you remember fab.com? Sure, they were, yeah. They were a flash sales site, right? And they seem like they're doing incredible. 
they raised hundreds of millions of dollars, hundreds, not just like $400 million, something like that. And the users were common. You saw their ads everywhere, blah, blah, blah. And then the next thing, they're, they're bust. Because users weren't sticking. What they had was they hadn't figured out the product market fit. So they could spend these hundreds of million dollars and keep their, the, it looking like new customers were coming in, but those customers were leaving without spending enough money to pay for the cost to acquire them. And we see that over and over and over again in Silicon Valley. Or the other thing is you just have a, a market that turns out to be too small. You know, it's just too small. It's going to be like a fine, small business. But for a venture capitalist giving you millions of dollars, uh, that is a washout for them. Even if you sell, you'll sell, you know, you're, they're lucky to get their money back at the end of the day. Yeah, which is, uh, that would be considered a giant loss <laughs> for a, a VC. You know, VCs yeah. want to have that, uh, you know, 10x plus, right? And and really, and that nine out of 10, they need this something that's going to hit the 100 to one to kind of to clean up all, all, the of, losers. all the losers. Yeah, and they, they still only average, them. you know, eight to one or, you know, eight, eight, 10 X return, but it's because nine of the 10 sucked all the money. And that one was the, the home run. So they have a term in Silicon Valley. They call the startup in their portfolio, like out of 10 companies, let's say you get one Twitter or Facebook or Airbnb. They call that startup, the fund maker. Basically it pays, it makes the fund profitable. And if you don't have, they've done them, you know, statistically, if you do not have a fund maker in your portfolio, at least one, you will lose money. So they are searching every bet they place. They are looking for a fund maker because they know they only have so many shots to get a fund maker and they want all their ammo, not aimed at small businesses, not aimed at medium sized businesses, not even named at large businesses. They want them named after the huge elephants, right? They're elephant hunting. They're out to get the elephants. And they, and that is why a lot of businesses that, for entrepreneurs out there that could be good small or medium-sized businesses get passed over. It yeah. doesn't mean you don't have a good business. It just means you don't have a good business for the venture capital business model as it as they structure it. But it could be very good for you. Yeah, I think that's uh, very well said. Now, uh, perhaps your book talks about this, and I'm definitely going to get a copy of that. And uh, for the customers out there who are grabbing up their copy as well, let's make sure we get out there, we read it, we do our homework. And we leave a proper nice review because that's what we do. We pay things forward. So uh, I can't wait to read it. Uh, but it, does it talk about in the book some of the, the types of companies, either in your accelerator um, or, or the guys around you, that the types of companies that are finding the easiest path to funding right now? Is it, does it all have to be SaaS or is it all AI and robotics? Uh, or are there other little segments that still have life in them? Oh, we do, we go uh, when we when I did wrote make elephants fly. I wanted it to appeal to everybody. So, in the sense that if you're innovating, if you're coming up with big ideas and you want to get them off the ground, it it's written uh, for high tech entrepreneurs, for traditional entrepreneurs, and also for people in corporations who just want to innovate inside their companies and come up with new products that can make their company. You know, whether you're in a large company like Google or you know or Procter & Gamble, or you're in a startup, the innovation process is very similar. And what, to answer your question, uh, with, you know, how do you know uh, if your idea at the beginning is going to be successful? How do you test it out? These are the things uh, that I think entrepreneurs really need to know. And they need to know how to do them without spending a lot of money. So I, uh, put in a lot of time 
giving examples of some high-tech businesses where they've actually gone out and tested their market with, mm -hmm. without even building any software. Like they built no software, yet they figure out if it can work. Like I had the startup and they were doing warehouse, they were doing uh, automation for warehouses and they wanted to create an augmented reality glass, a special glass that would guide people through the warehouse and show them where to get the products, pack and pick and pack, you know, where sure. they go, go to aisle seven, bin three, grab this product, move it here. And they wanted to make these warehouses more efficient. Now they could have spent a year you know, working on hardware and software and making the, the whole augmented reality thing. But instead, uh, they came up with a very novel solution. They didn't write a line of code. Instead, they basically just took people working in warehouses and then they wrote down what they would see in their augmented reality as flashcards and held it in front of their face. And then they go to aisle seven, go to bin three, grab this product, take it here, do this, write this address, everything they need to see, they would just hold up and they measured the time it saved the employees. And they found out that they could save roughly 15 to 20% of the employee's time using this augmented system. They had built nothing. They took that number, that data, and then they went to people like Walmart and Tesla and other people who run huge warehouses or need warehouses, and they showed them the data. And then those people came to them and they said, these big companies, they said, this is great. We want to fund your prototype. So they managed with no money to get these big corporations to fund their prototype. And as soon as they, the corporations put in the money to fund the prototype, then investors want it in, right? So, and, and, and so that's the type of thing I think startups need to learn. And if you look at traditional, I cover, you know, in the book, I cover a lot of traditional businesses. So businesses like Lululemon, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, uh, uh, all these other businesses like fitness gyms and things like that, uh, showing how they got off the ground in a traditional business by innovating. So for example, Lululemon, you know, there are a lot of retail stores selling clothing, you know, and a lot of athletic stores selling clothing. What did they do that was so special? And what the founder did was pretty amazing. He really looked for trends. He looked for what was the next thing. He had been in the business. He had actually founded a clothing company before, and he didn't have a good result. I oh, mean, fascinating. Yeah, he founded it. It did okay for a while, and then it just stopped making money. And then he, you know, because he's an entrepreneur, he didn't give up, and and he went back at it. And he saw that yoga was hot. And this is a guy, you know, he's not yoga is mostly women, uh, especially when he was starting. And he said, yoga's hot. Well, what if I made special clothing? that addressed the needs of these people in yoga. And this was before it was a big thing. And by narrowing it down and piggybacking it and becoming the brand in yoga, then Lululemon now sells a whole variety of athletic clothing. They've broadened way out, but they managed to grow their business very, very fast. And so it really doesn't matter what you're in, there are ways to innovate and there are ways to break into a market and actually have a very big win. Yeah, it, that reminds me kind of of the, the uh the guys with the uh, Under Armour stuff, right? Oh, yeah. you know, they, yeah. they very specialized in the sports uniforms. And, but now and they have the special uh, fabric, you know? right? Yeah. The weeks yeah. away. And the story yeah. was sound the the, the niche uh, initial market was sound, but then the brand got so big that they can go and do whatever they want. Right. It goes uh, bigger. So I, I think it's a pretty good lesson to, to stay pretty targeted early on, probably until you, you really, really do. Play. That's a great point you're making. You want, 
to focus on one thing and be the best in that category. You're never going to beat, beat Nike at being the best in like everything. You're not going to go against them. Uh, what you need to do is pick something that they're not focused on. The big guys aren't focused on. They're overlooking. You identify, and you can move faster in that segment than they can, and you can understand it at a much deeper level. And while they're, you know, corporations are slow, even like Nike, you know, they didn't get on the yoga thing till much later. They didn't get on the Under Armour thing till much later. You know, and that, those breaks, those, those cracks, those areas they're overlooking are your chance as an entrepreneur to win. Yeah, I think that's, again, something, you know, that is a big takeaway for folks out there listening. When, when you see uh, this opportunity, wherever it may be, but it, it, trying to sell everything to everybody is a, <laughs> is the a wrong proposition. <laughs> yeah, it really is a loser. Uh, well, look at I, Amazon. They started with just books. Yeah. Jeff Bezos, a brilliant guy. He could have said, I'm selling everything. Yeah, said, but, we're going to figure books out. We're going to build our brand. We're going to do it really better than anybody else could do it. We're going to win there, and then we're going to broaden out. Yeah, then you have the flexibility. You have the capital. You have the experience. You have the talent. There's so many things that you can do. So these are really uh, important lessons. I, I appreciate you bringing them to us. Uh, was there, you know, along the way, you you've been through a lot of stuff, some ups and downs, and so forth. But you've always been entrepreneurial. Always been kind of pushing the the envelope. But was there ever a time where you wanted to just give up, or maybe step back and just go, you know what? I'm just going to go get a cubicle job or, you know, maybe just uh, fade away or whatever. Uh, you know, sometimes these big losses can smack us in the face and knock us down. Have you ever wanted to give up? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I'm not always so perky. <laughs> there are times when, you know, you get beaten down. So after the dot-com crash, you know, the, yeah. the bubble burst, no venture capital is flowing. It was really tough. I was like, I was so beaten up uh, that I fled the country. <laughs> nice. I literally moved to Vancouver, Canada. Uh, my wife had a job. She got uh, with Electronic Arts, so she was working there. I, I huddled in my basement and recovered, and I wrote a book. So I wrote my first book, which was Game Design Workshop, which is all about game, because I was in the game business, sure. as I mentioned. And I just wrote this book for a year. I you know, did projects that I wanted to do, and then I was refreshed enough to come back after one year and I moved back to uh, uh, the Bay Area and got back into the whole tech and startup scene and everything else. But yes, I've really, you know, it, I've really felt it. And I've really been down. And when you're down, honestly, it doesn't matter what people say to you, you're, it doesn't help. The only thing that helps is what you say to yourself, you know? And at a certain point, you have to look back at, uh, you have to look at the mistakes you made and say, look, it's fine. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody does something wrong. And the only, and if I'm going to just dwell on these mistakes, then it will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, those will, you know, I will never do anything again. But if I can just look beyond them, and you don't want to just ignore mistakes you made. You want to look at them analytically and say, well, if I did this next time, what would I do? But you don't want to beat yourself up over them. So my first, you know, uh, when the dot-com crash hit and really knocked me up, you know, down, uh, you know, off seventh heaven and down to the ground, uh, then it was a, a sobering experience. In the long run, it turned out to be a really good experience because it showed me two things. One, it showed me that I wasn't invincible, right? That I could make mistakes, so it humbled me. And it showed me by being able to come back uh, and be as resilient as I was, that if, if I could do that, I could get knocked down many more times and still get back up again. I think that's really, again, uh, a very w well shared piece of experience. 
uh, a lot of people forget this idea. You know, uh, on the Facebook world we live in, it's like, hey, I'm having a sandwich. Hey, I'm traveling, you know, to this nice place and that nice place. There, there's rarely bad news unless you have kind of the negative uh, Nellies over there in the corner and everything's always going wrong for them. But, you know, the, the moral of the story for me is that these things do ebb and flow. And yeah, it, yeah and you have to remember Facebook is filtered. People yeah. put their, most people put their best side forward. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they don't tell you all their problems on Facebook because you really don't want to read about other people's problems. Yeah. But, Plus, you, but, but life is full of problems, full of challenges. It, it will continue to be. For me, I've always found it uh, ironic that nobody really cares about your failures as much as you do anyway, right? The rest yeah, nobody, of the world is like, nobody gives. yeah, whether you didn't achieve your full potential nobody cares right. yeah. <laughs> you care like oh i was supposed to do this but they are just like whatever you're you know if they're your friend they're like i'm still your friend and if they're not your friend they even care less yeah that's right yeah it's it's remarkable how little the world cares about our failures so yeah. um so i think that's really good uh, maybe as our uh final kind of piece here you could uh get, get out your crystal ball and maybe just tell us a little bit about how you see the future of uh, you know kind of small uh small companies getting the funding, you know, how, how do you see Silicon Valley working for these emerging businesses, whether they're technology or product driven or whatever, it doesn't matter. How do you see it work in the next five years? So in today's world, where there's so much information at the, our fingertips, and it's so easy to grow and scale companies, there are more opportunities than there have ever been in history for entrepreneurs. And there will continue to be because technology is advancing. It's advancing. And we always like, we always think like, oh, the big companies are dominating. You can't, there's nothing you can do to, to stop them. You know, the Amazons and Facebooks and Google, you can't compete with them. They're going to crush entrepreneurship or the economy is going to crush us, right? Well, the economy goes up and down. So there will be downs. And when there's downs, it's really tough to be an entrepreneur. Like after the dot-com bubble burst, I will tell you, it's really, really hard. But uh, you got to remember, there, it will come back. So it's always, it's a cyclical nature and, and it will, you can bounce back. As far as the big companies going throughout history, there have been giant companies dominating the market. You know, do you remember the East India company? And it's like, they were like, yeah, they were like the biggest company in the world and dominated trade, but even they met, had their day when they, you, back in the 19, you know, the early 1900s, there were these huge trusts. And, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was trying to break them up. And it was because these trusts were so powerful. They, they literally controlled the whole supply chain. They controlled all production. They controlled all transportation. They were just these mega companies and nobody could compete with them, right? No entrepreneurs. You know what? A new technology came around and it, and eventually, and, and, and it undermined every one of those trusts. Do you know what technology that was? Uh, let's say early 19, uh, that's something tele telephone telegraph, uh, close train. Electricity. <laughs> oh, electricity. Okay. Electricity changed the entire way you manufacture products. So they had streamlined their entire process for pre-electric production. When electricity came along, you, you could actually be much more flexible in your production. You, uh, the whole way you produced and everything changed. So new entrepreneurs came up with factories that were far more efficient in these invincible companies that seem like they would be dominate forever. It wasn't the legislation that Teddy Roosevelt wrote that broke them up. He only broke up like standard oil and some, you know, big ones or something, something like that. But the legislation that he wrote 
didn't have the big effect. The big effect happened when entrepreneurs utilized the latest technology and rethought production. They came at it from a whole new point of view. With electricity, we could do this innovation and this innovation. And before you knew it, their products were coming out the door faster, cheaper, and they could switch production lines and everything else much better than anybody else. And that's when uh, the old companies just went away. We don't even know them anymore. And so even today, if you're worried about the big companies, you're focused on the wrong problem. You've got to be looking at the latest technology coming in the pipeline and how can you use that to give your company a huge competitive edge so you can rethink how things are done in your business from the bottom up. If you do that, you have an opportunity. I love it. Well, and I really, I want to make sure the customers out there listening are paying close attention. You know, Captain Hoff said it very clear and I've said it before. And so ultimately I'm agreeing with me here, but uh, the, the, he said loudly and proudly, now is the best time ever to start a business. It's the best time ever to be an entrepreneur. And I couldn't agree more. All of the emerging technologies and the, the simplicity and the fact that we can do what we're doing now, you know, we've got, you know, video going, we've got audio going, we're not even in the same building, let alone the same state. Uh, th this is an amazing time we live in. And now really is the salad days for, uh, you know, entrepreneurs to be able to set their own path. I think that's really well, uh, really well said. Thank you for that. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me. You're oh, awesome. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Next time I'm down the valley, I'll uh, pop in. We'll say hi. Uh, yeah, I let can't, me know. Wait, can't wait to read your book. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, anytime somebody is kind of helping entrepreneurs. I love entrepreneurs. I can see that you do as well. So thank you for everything uh, that you do for the community. Uh, we really do appreciate that. And awesomers, listen at home. We will be right back after this. Catalyst 88 was developed to help entrepreneurs achieve their short and long-term goals in e-commerce markets by utilizing the power of shared entrepreneurial wisdom. Entrepreneurship is nothing if not lessons to be learned. Learn from others. Learn from us. I guarantee that we will learn from you. Visit Catalyst88.com because your success is our success. A giddy up. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. Well, it's uh, easy to see that Captain Hoff delivered. You know, how lucky we are to be able to have somebody who's so experienced in Silicon Valley uh, and somebody who's so dedicated to founders, right? This, this idea of having founder space that, you know, started as one simple office in Silicon Valley and is now uh, in 22 different countries with 50 different partnerships. That's really a commitment to entrepreneurs, and I salute uh, Captain Hoff for this uh, extraordinary effort towards helping entrepreneurs. And of course, his book, Make Elephants Fly, that sounds intriguing and I've already ordered it. I hope that you have too. I can't wait to read it. And you know, the combination of how do you innovate and how do you cope as a founder, I think are all are important stories. I'm glad you are here with us today and I hope that you are glad as well. This has been episode number 59 of the awesomers.com podcast. And all you have to do is go to awesomers.com slash 59 to see any of the show notes and relevant details about today's episode. Well, we've done it again, everybody. We have another episode of the Awesomers podcast ready for the world. Thank you for joining us, and we hope that you've enjoyed our program today. Now's a good time to take a moment to subscribe, like, and share this podcast. Heck, you could even leave a, a review if you wanted. Awesomers around you will appreciate your help. It's only with your participation and sharing that we'll be able to achieve our goals. Our success is literally in your hands. Thank you again for joining us. We are at your service. Find out more about me, Steve Simonson, our guests, team, and all the other Awesomers involved at awesomers.com. Thank you again. 
Radio.com.